This podcast is for you if you want to learn about the wonderful and wacky world of the English language and the people who speak it. If you want to learn English, speak English, and understand different speakers of English, then you're in the right place and you're going to love our podcast episode today. Welcome to English World with Chris Americos. We are a team of language lovers, expert teachers, and native speakers who are on a mission to help people around the world speak English and show the world their true value. We correct mistakes, practice pronunciation, and explore grammar rules while drinking coffee and having fun. So get comfortable, relax, grab a pen and paper, and welcome to the show. Today's episode is brought to you by English Every Day, an unlimited speaking practice program where you can join live speaking practice lessons with professional native teachers five times every day. There are a lot of courses on the internet and a lot of useful videos too, but the one thing that is missing for most English learners is practice. And if you need speaking practice, then English Every Day is for you. So click the link in the description or go to chrisamericoast.com to learn more today. So today we have Jennifer with us and she has built a YouTube channel, a brand, a website, a business and uh, done some things that a lot of people want to do. And she's taken some time to talk with us today. So we're really excited to have you, Jennifer. And maybe you can just give us like that, that really fast, like, how did you get started with this? How did you get into this? You know? Well, first of all, thanks for having me. Good to be here. Um, How did I get started? It was just a matter of circumstances that I wanted to teach. And I had been out of the classroom because I had my first child. And then as my second one was born, I wasn't ready to go back into the classroom full time. Um, And I wanted to find a way to teach. So uh, YouTube was just taking off and I decided to experiment and put some videos out there and they were received positively. Um, It was a good time to post because hardly anyone was posting. (laughs) So people um, took interest and the support was there and I decided to pursue it. I didn't know that it would grow into a whole branch of my career. Um, It's just something that I decided to try out and experiment. um, And then receiving the support encouraged me and I decided to move forward. And when possibilities appeared to monetize, I thought, hey, you know, I I could do this. (laughs) I could stay here and figure it out along the way. (laughs) So when, what year was that? That, If it was that early on in, in YouTube. You're you're asking me to reveal my age, which I'm more confident (laughs) to do now, but 2007, 2007. You started on YouTube in in 2000. Uh, Yes. I started teaching in 1996 or, and then, um, yeah, well, if you count all my teaching, I first started teaching Russian. That's a whole nother story, but English 1996. And then, um, that was like in person, obviously. And then YouTube 2007. (laughs) Amazing. Yeah. You know, I always, I think of you as one of the foundational figures kind of, of, of the English teaching YouTube community and, you know, all of the people who have kind of come and gone along the way, you've been this steady force. <laughs> Thank you. But I, I think that's more like, hey, if she could do it, I can too. And I can do it better. <laughs> so I think it's, if anything, I'm just happy that I've shown people over the years, you know, yes, you can. Um, and you'll figure it out along the way and probably figure it out faster <laughs> than I did. So if anything, I'm happy that I've been able to inspire people to try. Do you think that there's an element of competition that goes into the motivation behind people making videos? And like, do you think that that's 
that that's good or bad? Or, or what do you think about competition in this space? Well, certainly, if you want to talk about it being saturated now, oh, yeah. <laughs> As I said, 2007, hardly anyone was posting. So, and people were just coming on YouTube to find anything, funny cat videos to like how to cook and, oh, look, here's somebody teaching English. And um, yeah, it's I remember something... looking up how to tie a tie. <laughs> yes, yeah, anything. That's what YouTube was originally. It's just anything you wanted to know. It's like having a neighbor show you. You're like, oh, thank you. But here's actually someone teaching English. And the funny comments at first were like, you're pretty good at this. Have you considered like teaching? I'm like, yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I thinking that I was just this person who was helping, which I was, but they didn't realize I actually had qualifications until I started being, um, you know, I guess more open about who exactly I was and what I was um, trying to bring to the table, so to speak. But yes, now in 2023, there's what, hundreds of us posting, which is exciting because in 2010, I made my first presentation at our big convention, which is, we have two big associations, as you may know. Um, in the US, it's um, TESOL. And so I made my first presentation at TESOL in 2010 in Boston, and it was called YouTube and Beyond. And it was just me trying to get people excited about the possibilities of what I'm doing, and you can do it too. It was packed. I was so excited. And it's funny that my message back then was like, yes, you can, and you need to, because there's so much in demand there, and I can't do it alone. And fast forward to 2023, there's so many people posting, it's exciting. But now the challenge for any online teacher, specifically on YouTube, but anywhere, um, it's just being seen, being visible, having your reach, and then maintaining it. Yes, it's harder now. I, I have to think about this too. Like, how do I stay relevant in 2023? Some people don't know me. Some people like, is she still posting? <laughs> so, And so, yeah, it's not all about YouTube because you're also mm -hmm. a published author. And so you've done all these different things. So what do you say when someone asks what you do? I had funny responses to that before because I sometimes would use, I, I would avoid independent contractor. I think that's just sort of like the, the framework if we're speaking about like taxes, but you know, independent contractor can be an electrician too. <laughs> so yeah. I, um, I am an online English language teacher. That's the shortest description I can give because at heart I'm a teacher and I teach the English language and I work pretty much exclusively online. So I am an online English language teacher. And then everything I do extends from there, blogging, content creation, authoring books, even the self-published book that isn't for students, but it's based on my experience teaching online. So first and foremost, online English language teacher. Awesome. Yeah. And so when you published books, you had to work with some big publication companies, right? Yep. Can yeah. you share your experience there? Because I think that this is something that a lot of people in this field would like to do, but they really have no guidance on how to do it yet. Uh, again, um, I might say this more than once, but you know, my path is one possible model, or it's just it, it's not a path that everyone has to follow. It's not a blueprint. It's just a possibility. Um, to give context, though, um, I always wanted to create and share. Even when I was like teaching Russian as a teacher trainee, I was creating things for the classroom. I'm just someone who always wanted to bring something else to my lessons. Um, I was the teacher who got a textbook and, and had the urge to add to it, do something more, unless I was told not to. Um, mm -hmm. 
But in, in Russia, I actually, that's where I started publishing. And this was like the seed of my desire to contribute. Um, before the internet, um, before email really was even dominant, I was cold calling publishers in, in Moscow oh. and wow. saying, and just trying to get people to listen to me. And so here's this American, you know, calling people with her, you know, fairly good Russian, but, you know, and trying to explain what I want to do. And I got a couple of people interested. So that was my first lesson of trying to get published is that you can't wait for it to happen. You have to seek opportunities. You have to put yourself out there somehow. So back in the 90s, it was cold calling, waiting for people to say yes, having a meeting and hoping that it would lead to something. So I had a relationship with a, a few different publishers. I had a small children's magazine take interest in a story that I wrote. I had um, some smaller publications published. And my desire was to share content and get it in the Russian bookstores at affordable prices because the content that was becoming out of the UK was not accessible or affordable to the average student or teacher. It was just overpriced. And I wanted something in American English that sounded natural. Um, I didn't have great awareness of how inexperienced I was at the time. So I don't want to look back at those books, but it was an honest effort. The point was I felt I had ideas that I wanted to contribute. There was something that wasn't out there or if there were things that were similar to what I wanted to contribute, they just were not accessible. So um, cold calling led to my first publications in Moscow. And then in the US, I was teaching at an IEP, that's an intensive English program for those who don't know. And again, I was fortunate just to be in the right time and place and seeking opportunities. You have to make yourself visible. I mean, that's the lesson on YouTube, but outside of YouTube, what can you be doing? Um, I was excited because the school gave me the chance to create materials. So I wrote um, the this four-level writing book series in-house publication for our school. And a visiting rep came from a publisher um, because she's trying to sell their books, but browsed what was in our library or bookstore and took interest and noted my name. And then later down the line, as she moved up the ladder in the publishing house, she remembered me and reached out to me to give me my first shot at making a submission. And that's what led to my first big textbook series, um, Vocabulary Power, because I just sought an opportunity in-house publishing that happened to catch the interest of a visiting rep who happened then to move up the ladder and then remember my name. Get yourself out there, show people what you're capable of. Someone will take notice eventually, but you have to put yourself out there and hope that the pieces of the puzzle put yourself together. And then um, I'm just thankful that a relationship grew with Pearson, that's the publisher I work with. And another um, textbook series came along the way, Next Generation Grammar, um, I was also the video coach for that because I was on YouTube. They needed a video coach and they said, hey, she can be one of the writers and the video coach. Putting yourself out there shows people what you're capable of. You may not know what jobs you want, but people see the potential and match it up to the projects that they have in mind. And I'm happy to say that to this day, I still have Pearson sponsoring my blog for teachers. So that's awesome. That's a long story, but yes. That's, That's my experience so cool. with publishers. And Put I, yourself out there. Put yourself out there. <laughs> who need to hear that message. That's, it's so powerful. Awesome. Yeah. And how would you compare working with publishers to, you know, publishing yourself, being self-published, using Amazon or something like that? 
Um, gosh, <laughs> I'm, I'm new at this. I only self-published in uh, November. I got this idea to publish only last year. It was um, like a few month period of like, huh, I should write. Okay, I'll write. I wrote and then I'm going to publish it. I didn't put it in the works for very long, which is a contrast to what happens with a publisher. It's a long process. It's at least a year or so, right? From concept, they, when by the time they hire you, they already have it sort of fleshed out. They're looking for writers. And so that's another big thing, guys, is that if you already have a book and an idea, if you've actually already written it, you're not going to say, hey, to a publisher, can you publish this, a big one? They already have their marketing research in place. They have ideas that they want to put on the market. They're looking for the writers to create the content. Um, but if you have your own book, it's you want to go the self publishing route or find a small publisher um, who works with independent authors like my editor Walton Burns from Alphabet Publishing um, because you can do it a whole lot faster on your own and it can you have much more creative control right versus with a publisher um, you also have editors um, they also decide the artwork the graphics the cover um, there are advantages and disadvantages both ways. Um, the nice thing with a publisher is you get an advance <laughs> that um, when you self-publish, it's, it's all out of pocket, guys. There's a lot of hats you're going to have to wear. Um, it's not just the writing, but, you know, you probably should have someone edit because, as we know as teachers, um, it's hard to edit your own work. You really need someone else's eye and someone else's constructive feedback. Um, you also have to think, hey, you don't have somebody marketing for you. So how are you going to get it out there? I hired people off of Fiverr to help me um, format because it got, I was tried and I was like, oh my gosh, this is so complicated, trying to get the right specifications on Amazon. And so I, I hired somebody to help me do that. My editor was also my cover designer. I trusted him since he'd done it before. Those are all out-of-pocket expenses. Mm -hmm. And so how are you tackling the marketing bit now? How are you <laughs> I'm learning, Chris. I'm learning um, because I just wanted to get my idea out there. I wasn't really thinking that far ahead of like, oh, yeah, I also have to market it. So um, it's out there. And now I realize you really have to seek some speaking engagements to really promote it because it's not just for people in ESL. This is a larger message that I have for other creators. And because I wrote it at my midlife crisis point, I think it's also relevant for people at midlife. And so I've reached out to podcasters um, from podcasters who target um, women entrepreneurs or women at midlife. So I'm trying to go outside of ESL and broaden my reach and get the message right now through like podcasting guest spots. Um, but I'm sort of making it up as I go along as I get information. It's reaching out to people and um, reaching out to communities of other independent authors, finding out what they do and learning. Just like someone might learn, you know, how do you teach online? I can give you advice on that, but I'm learning. How do you market your book? <laughs> this is something new to me. I think a lot of people, um, kind of create and then don't think about how they're going to gain that awareness. But you already have this huge uh, platform to reach out from, right? To contact that audience again and, and to tell them this new message that you have. So like, that's an advantage that you have, but it sounds like the thing that has always worked for you is networking and hustling, 
Right. Invisibility. It's like, I, I, yeah, you know, there's that term teacherpreneur. I don't know. Do you like it or not? I, uh, I, <laughs> it's fine. It's something new. Um, it takes me time to adjust to new things. I, I, I can't adapt, obviously, but um, it takes me some time. And I admit from the get go, I, I was always hesitant to put on the businesswoman hat, you know. Um, am I an entrepreneur? I guess so. But it wasn't one of my goals to be one. It wasn't a conscious decision. Unlike some people come into the game thinking YouTube channel, social media, and they have their goals and objectives of how they're going to scale it. That wasn't my ride. My journey has been very different, <laughs> very organic and unfolding and working on um, intuition. So again, my path is just one possibility, but I, I do feel that I'm working on that balance now. And in the case of the book, it's like, okay, I really do need to think more about marketing, something that I haven't embraced all these years online um, that, you know, you can learn and you can learn how to make it work for you. So I'm embracing things that I previously have pushed off because it just didn't feel like me. And part of it is because I feel like I, I'm so comfortable um, with the identity of being a teacher that I've really hesitated to embrace the entrepreneur. And now I'm sort of accepting that, okay, it's time to put that preneur on the end of my <laughs> <laughs> label here, because I, I do need to embrace it more if I want to continue to grow. This is the second leg of my journey now. You know, the book helped me reflect on the first part. And now I'm, I'm very aware of where I am and how I want to proceed, not necessarily where I want to go, but how I want to go and how I want this next part of my journey to be. Um, I, I need to embrace the entrepreneur part more than I have in the past. That's uh, thank you so much for sharing that and being so, you know, open about because <laughs> you've achieved such, such great levels of success already by most people's standards, I would say. And so, you know, it's very humbling to hear. <laughs> no, I, I mean, that's what I wrote the book partly for is because I just, I, I'm not the best person to do, to say how to do it. There are other people who've scaled faster um, and they're headed towards 5 million, 10 million, whatever. Um, I just want other people to know that I've struggled and I've had my doubts and there's times where I cried or wanted to give up. And I, I just want people to know that because I think just too often we only see that successful shine that people, we all try to put out there on social media. We want to be positive. Of course we do. But I think it's also important to um, let people know we're human because it's sort of <laughs> reassures everybody that we're, we're, we're all okay. You know, no one um, has all the answers. I certainly don't. And I just want to open up about that. That was one of the big things I wanted to achieve with the book to say, yeah, I hit an important milestone. That's why I put the tagline in there. I thought if, if I just put a book about being a YouTuber, people were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I knew I had to put a tagline in there, which is really long. The subheading is um, one creator's bumpy road to 1 million subscribers. So I put the 1 million in there to say, yes, I did it, but my road was bumpy. Yeah. So a lot of people have this question, like, where should we draw the line between education, entertainment? YouTube is a lot of, is really about entertainment a lot of times and, and business. So where, where can we draw the line between those things? Um, it's not always clear. What about for you? Where would you draw the line? 
I think our job is to engage, right? But it's not necessarily to entertain. That's true of any teacher, online or offline. I mean, when you go into yeah. the classroom, we're not there to be a barrel of laughs. I mean, if some teachers can bring in the guitar and work music into their lesson, beautiful, that's their talent. But, you know, students can't come into the classroom every day expecting a performance. Like, that's not what they're there for. So in any form of teaching, we need to be engaging, but it's not the same as entertaining. Now, being online... Um, well, some priorities are going to stay the same. Like, I, I just feel education always has to take priority over entertainment. Um, I'm not on YouTube to entertain. Um, there are plenty of other channels that do that. It's really frustrating, though, like when you see your video has like maybe just a few thousand views and there's somebody eating potato chips into a microphone and they got 20,000 views because they, people want to hear the crunch of different potato chips, like not, you know, Doritos yeah, is crunchier yeah. than Lay's. And you're like, geez, oh my gosh, these people got 20,000 views with chips. Okay. But you have to admit, it's probably exciting and more interesting to watch people chew potato chips than learn grammar sometimes. Um, <laughs> but, but again, I'm there to educate. I hope to engage um, and then, you know, deliver my, my instruction. Now, online, we also engage by sharing people, especially in, in what we do. You, you're the same way. Our names are part of our brand. Um, and um, many of us still are the face of our, our channel. Some people have had teams, but, you know, you're still Chris and I'm still Jennifer. And um, people want to connect with you. And the way they connect with you is knowing something about you. So we do open part of our lives up to people. That's a way to engage. And some of my um, personal shares online um, are entertaining in nature. Like I've played the piano. I've just recorded myself. And that's not a language lesson. It's just me sharing a part of my life. And But I think it's a way to connect with my audience. So there's that element. But why am I sharing? I'm sharing to connect. And my primary goal isn't to entertain, but to connect so that I can build that trust. And again, to show who I am as a person so that people feel comfortable learning with me. Um, so, yeah, in terms of um, entertainment versus education, education takes priority. Same thing for me, like education versus business. Um, education still takes priority. And I've paid for that. Um, that's why I say I need to embrace more of that entrepreneur role um, because we all have to make a living at this, too. And that's a reality that we, we need to address when I would present at TESOL. I say present in the past because up till COVID, I was presenting yearly and then COVID happened. I haven't presented in a while. Um, I would present, you know, sort of the academic side of what I'm doing. But after every presentation, people come up. And why would they come up? They want to know about the money. How do you do it? It's like, I want to do it, but can you survive? Can you make a living? People need to know about that side of it too. That like when you... It's like writing a book, you need to scale back on teaching time because you need time to write. And if you're going to start a YouTube channel, you cannot expect revenue immediately. It's not going to be there. So you have to plan for that. So you need to face reality about what it means to start an online teaching business and, and scale it up because the money is not going to be there right away. It, you have to invest. So looking at YouTube specifically, there's a lot of different you know, creators and people doing different things out there. How would you describe like the current state of affairs of, of this community on YouTube teaching English? Because 
there are some aspects that people like or don't like. Uh, what about you personally? It's certainly a fast growing community, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, how many are, I don't know, or are there numbers, like how many there are of us on YouTube teaching English? What's your guess? Um, so for, for our research, we had to, oh, yeah. and so we got to like a thousand adults oh, that have at least a hundred thousand <laughs> subscribers. So like that was just a hundred thousand and up. Um, and that's like, we were trying to focus just on English teaching because you get yeah. you channels that have like mixed different languages. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we tried to filter that. But yeah, I think a thousand, at least a thousand yeah. over a hundred thousand. And there's more and more joining. And you're just probably looking at YouTube. I mean, consider that yeah. the, some teachers focus mainly on TikTok or on right. Instagram. Um, it's a very fast growing community. Um, I think... There, there are people from the beginning, there, there have been connections. It took a while for them to form. I think collaborations started for me around like 2010, around there, early 2010s. Um, collaborations are good. I think that's what we need more of is ways to organize and connect. People reach out to each other, but I wish there were more spaces where we could come together and support each other. Um, I think there's a hesitancy sometimes because it's like, well, how much do you share? You know, there is that element of competition. Are you giving away secrets or something? Um, I speak openly if people ask for my advice or if whether they arrange a consultation or if it's um, part of a live on Instagram. I would like to see more connections, more ways for us to connect and support each other, a place where we can come together and talk about common objectives, not necessarily online, but uh, in a place where those discussions could happen about what are the challenges that we face as online teachers, common objectives, um, and also common standards, which I think is something that should be talked about. Um, collectively and it's nice to have the one-on-one -on -one and but um it would be nice to have this sort of common consensus of what we're trying to achieve collectively because we are a collective in the sense that we're creating this vast uh, wealth of materials out there but what are each of us contributing um you know that I don't know. What do you think about standards? I, I just feel like yeah, everybody has their own and that's fine, but there should be some common ones. Like, and, and I'm fine with that. So for example, my personal ones, I don't teach swear words. In fact, I have a video, people like either like it or tease me about it, like how not to swear, <laughs> like, wow. oh shoot, that kind of thing, like crap, you know, everything but the hardcore stuff. Um, and some people teach the hardcore swearing and that's okay. I'm fine with that. But then, um, I, I guess some of the things that I would say no to is like native speakerism. I've been a, a bit advocate trying to support the non-native English speaking teachers. And um, I've done a number of lives on Instagram with more so with non-native English speaking teachers to show my support because there is a common myth out there um, that the best way to learn is with a native speaker. You must learn with a native speaker. And my answer to that in the case of English is no, it's a global language. So, but you have to be careful because some of the language out there is like how to be a native speaker, how to sound like a native. You need to get an, I'm like, be careful guys, what, what, what you're communicating. So. Yeah, I agree with you. And it's, it's really a fine line to walk because it is. Yeah. On my YouTube channel, I have videos talking about the myth of native speakers and like 
trying to break down this myth. And I regularly advise people that, in my opinion, if you're under a certain level, it's better to study with a non-native teacher. <laughs> yeah, and for the translations. I, so I've taken that position. But then at the same time in our marketing, mm. have to catch the attention of people and like communicate what they want. And that's what they want, unfortunately. I do that. But see, I, it's it's the language. So one of my projects right now, wish me luck, being the teacherpreneur, is I'm trying to create this online store. So I think, you know, thinking, what do I want to share? What's something, um, one of, what are my strengths? One of my strengths, I feel, is my reading voice, my pronunciation. When I put on my teacher's hat, um, I feel that I'm able to offer a clear speech model. So when I write my product descriptions, I don't say use you know Jennifer's native speech model or something like that. I use words like clear, natural, or her expressive reading of poetry. So those are the words that I would rather use rather than say, you know, listen to my model because I'm a native speaker, <laughs> Right. you know, but yes, I mean, I think um, people who are clicking on it aren't clicking on it, not knowing me. I think that's the other thing you're, you're on YouTube or Instagram. You've heard me speak. And if you like my model, you probably want to go the extra step and then see what resources I'm able to offer. But again, I, I would describe my model as clear, natural, and not, throw in the native speaker element mm. in the description, but it's, it's a tough one. Um, yeah. So, you know, about why we need to come together and have more discussions. It's one to support each other. Um, but as I said, it's, I, I wish we could talk more collectively about what we're trying to do and the best ways to do it, like some common standards that we, we could adhere to. Um, one of the trends I've uh, talked here and there with different teachers is um, the trend of the, don't say this, don't say thank you, don't say this. And I'm like, oh, you know, I've sort of walked that line myself, but I, I have mixed feelings about that. What do you think about, don't say fine, thank you. No one says fine, thank you. <laughs> I think as, as a thumbnail on YouTube, I don't have anything really against it. No. If the video itself says that, then that's just wrong. So like people say that you should say that. And so that's just wrong. So I would just say that that's a mistake that the teacher is making and teaching the material, right? Right. So same thing. Like it, we all want to get um, the visibility. So the YouTube, the, the, the title, the thumbnail can have that. Um, but I'd let, like I say, I'd be more accepting of it if you then say, look, you can say it, but just don't overuse it. And I did a video like that because I actually got it from teaching. I have an advanced student who was using gotcha all the time. And it's like he picked this up and he learned that as in a way to say, okay, or yeah, I, I understand or got it, but he was overusing it. And so I was like, I, I made a video, a collaborative video with somebody to say, okay, once you learn an alternative, it doesn't matter whether it's the original, oh, I understand, or gotcha. You can't just keep using the same ones. You want variety. So I like yeah. my titles are more like other ways to agree or other ways to say, I understand. That reminds me of something that happened with my daughter. When I'm going to tickle her, I'll say, I'm going to get you, get you, get you. And so just like, it's funny how children develop language. She, instead of saying, are you going to get me? When she asked me back, she said, are you going to get me? 
she she thought that that was part of the part of the word, you know. Yeah. She thought this was a special thing. Getcha and gitch me. Get you. Kids learn from us. And as you get older, you'll see it goes both ways. Um, we learn from them and they learn from us. Uh, it was, something hit me uh, not too long ago because <laughs> my son is, um, he's already a young man. And I had grown up um, seeing rabbits. And with my kids, I just got in the habit of calling it bunnies. Mm -hmm. Oh, look, there's a bunny. Look at all the bunnies. And I didn't realize until it came out of his mouth that he wasn't using the word rabbit. He was saying bunny. And I said, you do know that there's rabbits and bunnies and bunnies, the cute word. And it's like, oh, <laughs> I thought bunnies and rabbits were a little different. I'm like, no. So it's just funny. You have to be careful with the language that we use, even around our kids, um, that some of our habits uh, can be misunderstood. <laughs> so coming back to the, to the teacher community, I saw on your website that you have a teacher's pledge. Mm -hmm. yeah. So like, how does that kind of guide you on your day to day when you're, when you're doing your work, you know, I, I, I see this as like your philosophy or your. It is, it is. Mm -hmm. I have it off to the side. I don't know if anyone ha I'd happy, happy to read it, but um, it's on my website. Uh, I have a teacher's pledge and I have a learner's pledge and actually it's um one of the things I have available on my new store just for a dollar because um, you can't charge, you, ha you have to put a price on it. So anyways, there's a very, very nicely formatted version of the pledge and then there's my reading of it. Um, so for the teacher's pledge, uh, first and foremost, it's that I am a learner too. And I always try to remember that, that I never have all the answers and it's okay to admit when I don't and I need to pursue the answers when I don't have them. So I feel that readiness to learn is at the core of who I am and what I do. Um, I love making videos because as you know, the, the more you teach a topic, the better you master it. And each time you think, oh, I know the present perfect. And then you start teaching it. And usually again, that fifth time, 50th time, whatever time it is teaching the present perfect, like, huh, you, you yeah. master another subtlety. You're like, oh, I didn't think about that. Or the questions that people give, I'm like, that's a really good question. Someone did it the other day. I you know, already have lessons on there is, there are, but the way they ask the question, I'm like, oh, I need to address that little element. And so I get excited thinking that, okay, my first explanation was pretty good, but it was, it didn't address that point. So I never stopped learning. Um, I never stopped challenging myself as a teacher. And, um, but I also know as a learner, um, it's okay to make those mistakes. That's a really hard one for me because if I see a mistake in a video or, um, and I'm not talking like a typo, it's just like an explanation, like, ooh, that might not have been the best way to say it. Um, I, I get this feeling inside of me of anxiousness, dread, whatever, anxiety, dread. Uh, it just, I, I want to fix it. Um, that's yeah. part of what guides me too, is that I'm, I'm not happy if I know that I can improve or if there's something I need to correct. So I'm ready to acknowledge my mistakes, learn from them, grow from them, um, especially when it comes to grammar. <laughs> so you're talking about reacting to your own video. Material. Oh, yes, yes. I almost don't want to sometimes watch my old videos because, you know, you know, I, I'm, I'm a recovering, they call it a recovering perfectionist. I've let, <laughs> I've let go of perfectionism. Uh, it's just not achievable. <laughs> and if, if you want to publish videos also, um, especially there was a time where I was publishing every week and that's really hard to keep up with. Um, you, you just got to let it go sometimes and figure that's the best I can do right now and 
there it goes. How would you feel feel if someone watched one of your old videos, found some kind of mistake or, you know, something that you misstated a little bit and they made a video? Correct. (laughs) It's fine. It's fine. Um, I think it's how they approach it and how they do it. Um, I, I also think being out there and, you know, once you put a video out there on any topic, you're pretty much putting yourself in a position of not necessarily expert, but some position of authority. So you have to be prepared to be challenged. And there are people who say, but my teacher said this, but this book says that. And I get those comments. Um, Luckily, like nine times out of 10 or even more, I have an answer. I have a response to defend what I've taught. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's another thing is like, you know, make your videos with quality, do your research. Um, that's also a reason why grammar videos usually take the most uh, effort because I, I really make sure I got everything in place before because um, I want to deliver accurate information. And um, I know that I have to stand behind my work. Um, so commit yourself to quality information, do your research. Um, but I, I, it's fine. One time, if I, it's usually that it wasn't as clear as it could have been. And so then I have a follow-up video a few years later. Or, you know, if there's like a mistake, there's once where I caught myself, oh, I didn't explain indirect objects clearly. I was off and I admitted it. I, at first I blogged about it because I used my blog as an opportunity for reflection, which I highly encourage teachers to do. Reflect, reflect, um, write about what's going on every week, whether you're blogging openly or just for yourself. Um, it's really good to reflect on your teaching practice. But my first was my first reaction was emotional, like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I did this. I like, how can I forgive myself? You know, or like, <sighs> like all these years, I was I, I didn't have the proper understanding of indirect objects. Oh my gosh, you know. How shameful. <laughs> but um, then I thought, okay, you know, what can we learn? How do we fix it? Do I need to fix it? How do I um, adjust and move on from here? So, th- how does the pledge guide me? It guides me to be my best. It guides me to learn, accept my mistakes, and learn from them. And also um, to support colleagues in ways that I can, knowing that they support me in turn. It's, that, that's what I want my teaching practice to be. Um, yeah. <laughs> awesome. And I remember from when we talked earlier that you have lived in Pennsylvania. Now you live in Massachusetts. And <laughs> a lot of people who are watching, listening, they want to learn American English and they want to understand some of the nuances of, you know, different regional accents and things like this. So how would you describe, you know, the differences or, or are there differences between English in Massachusetts and English in Pennsylvania, even though they're, uh, you know, geographically not really so far away? No, no, there, there are this, the dialects and the accents um, in American English. Um, you know, you and I strive for standard American English. And I've really um, tried to have that all my life. Although, um, yeah, there is something called Pittsburghese uh, up here in Boston. Oh, it's funny. I've been up here since uh, 2001. And sometimes when I go down and visit my cousin, one cousin says, you sound different. <laughs> no. And I'm like, really? Do I? Um so, you can't help it, though, because when you're in that environment, you start to pick some things up. Yes, but I, I try to resist. Um, you, <laughs> perhaps you've heard, um, uh, which character was it? Matt Damon in um, which movie was in Goodwill Hunting? And uh-huh. that's, the, that's the accent. Um, Boston. Ba- I can't. Yeah, Boston. Boston. Ba- Boston the Boston accent. Mm-hmm. And um, it's, it's that the rounded O's rather than Boston. Ba. 
it's very nasal, Boston. And the R's get dropped, um, the, the non-rhotic speech. Like, yeah. So they instead added, of they ka, on the hanging A sounds. Ka, where, the, ka, the cars are like, the, the drivers of all these cars are really crazy in Boston. <laughs> like, yeah. So for, I, for New England and the Boston area, it's that pronunciation. Um, some are more pronounced than others. And then the only word that really sticks out, and they use it in marketing all the time, is wicked. And that's something I had not heard until I came up here. I'm like, wicked? Why is everyone saying wicked hot, wicked cool, wicked? Wicked good coffee. Wicked, wicked coffee, coffee. <laughs> mm-hmm. Wicked, yeah, meaning very. So that was different. In Western Pennsylvania, um, there's been a lot of influences there. Um, my relatives are an example, um, Eastern European roots and uh, coal mining country. It's like the the northern part of like Appalachian culture, no. you know. So I think the Eastern European immigrants in part influenced the speech there. Um, so Pittsburghese, it's a little bit of pronunciation. So, for example, um, Pittsburgh has a history of producing steel, but they say still so not the Pittsburgh Steelers, but the Pittsburgh Stillers. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. a little bit of pronunciation. But oh my gosh, we have so many words um, that we actually take pride in in Pittsburghese. And some of them I didn't realize I was using until I got out of Western Pennsylvania and I'm asking for a gum band and people are like, what? Gum band? <laughs> a gum band? Yeah, I'm like, you know, gum band. band. It's a rubber band. And a rubber band? Oh, wow. <laughs> you know, if, you're, if your room is a mess, you need to red up. I'm like, red up. Yeah, you need to red up the room. I'm like, no, red up is like to clean up. And it's not slippery, it's slippy. Your neighbors can be Mm -hmm. so nebby. Why are you so nebby asking all these questions about me? Nebby is like nosy. Um, (laughs) A thorn bush, jagger bush. It's it's funny. The The one that always stuck out for me was yin's. Yin's guys. Yeah, yin's guys need to red up. And why are you being so nebby? Like, I didn't also, this is also regional. When you go running or exercising, what shoes do you put on? Running shoes, jogging shoes, tennis shoes, gym shoes. Oh, see, you do. So I grew up saying tennis shoes as well, tennis shoes. And then coming up here to in New England, it's sneakers. I'm like, okay, sneakers, yeah. yeah. (laughs) So um, it's fun. I, I think if you start living in a country and you can start picking up on all these regional differences. It's interesting. I mean, language is fascinating and cultures and subcultures, it's all fun. Um, But as a language learner, you know, I I think if you're outside of the U.S., for example, um, you definitely want to exposure to different varieties, American English, Australian English, Canadian, um, Canadian North, that's all North American English. Exposure to varieties is important So, for comprehension. In terms of speaking, you can lean towards one variety for your model. So some people favor the British accent or some people say, oh, I love the Australian accent and that's fine. So I, I think exposure to different varieties is key. Even for us, we want to train our ears to understand English is a global language. So the more 
accents we can understand, I think the better. It makes it easier for communication to take place. Expose yourself. You can prefer the British accent and think the American accent is ugly. Fine. But you know what? You need to understand the American accent because it's out there. So do yourself a favor and expose yourself to the different varieties of English. Now, as a model, you can favor one and, and choose, but also know it's okay to have a blend. And, and that's fine too. I have a Russian tutor, by the way, and she's, it's like a really interesting mix. Some things she says, it sounds more British. Some things she says, it sounds American. It's fine, but she speaks clearly. That's what it's all about. Comprehension. Mm -hmm. That's Absolutely. my position. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so much, Jennifer, for taking the time to have this chat with us today. And can you tell everyone how they can find you? Yes, um, you can find me on YouTube, English with Jennifer, and I use the same um, name pretty much on all platforms, Instagram as well, and I have a website, English with Jennifer, so I hope you'll visit. Awesome, and we'll put all the links under the video or, or wherever you're watching or listening, the links are in the description. Super. Thank you so much. Thank you, Chris. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in to English World with Chris Americos. Now, it's your turn. Don't just listen to English, speak English with us every day. Join our English Everyday Speaking Program today. See you in the next episode. Bye-bye.